Hello, Woodland Hills. How y'all doing? Well, you look marvelous. You look marvelous. Uh, I, I just want to reiterate about that seminar, um, the seminars, uh, the women dealing with shame and the guys dealing with wild at heart. Get in touch with that wild heart of yours, guys. Uh, it, it really, I think, is going to be a very powerful, effective uh, kind of thing to uh, be a part of. So I really encourage you to seriously consider that. Uh, we're in this series, as Sean mentioned, uh, called Overwhelm. And uh, today I want to talk about shame. Now, this is something that uh, was in the top five. This is the, the whole series is on top five things that keep people at Wilden Hills Church stuck, uh, that overwhelm us, that we just can't seem to get over. And this rated right up there. This was, what, 29% of the folks who uh, left that form uh, some time ago, uh, that when we asked them what is the number one thing that you deal with, 29% identified shame as that thing. And I suspect for a large number of other people, it may not be the number one thing you deal with, but I bet on some level, a good percentage of us deal with it. Now, Sue Krogkramer was supposed to give this message. Uh, she is a, really a specialist in this area. She's got great things to say. She's a good friend of mine. She's an incredible communicator. But uh, a couple days ago, Thursday, she got sick. Came down with that crud that's going around. It's, and it's nasty. It's really deep in her throat and stuff. Uh, so I, I'm, uh, so you're stuck with me, okay? Deal with it. You're stuck with me. Pitch hitting. Too bad. So sad. Get over it. Uh, but I'm happy to do this. This is uh, an important topic. Um, I want to start with uh, looking at the passage that we're, 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 shame is first introduced into our world. It's in Genesis 3. Uh, as a preface to this passage, I want to say this. Genesis 3 is just a God-breathed, revelatory, wisdom-packed passage. We could spend easily a year just unpacking Genesis 3. It's got so much there. Uh, but all that wisdom will blow right past us if we're not focused on the right things. If we get focused on the wrong questions, what's happened so often, you're just going to miss the, the, the thing that it, that it has to teach us. If, if we're obsessed with, you know, how figurative is this, how literal is this, and all those kind of questions... The passage isn't designed to answer those questions, and so we're going to miss the point. To get the wisdom of this passage, you just need to take it as it is and, and, and learn the lesson that it has to teach us and set all those other kind of things aside. So let's read Genesis 3. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. What, you think we're going to starve? It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. Because God said you must not eat it or touch it, because if you do, you will die. I just pause for a moment. Uh, that, that tree, it's, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as I understand it, it, it's sort of God's loving no trespassing sign. And God is saying there, look, be like me and in my image in terms of how you love, but don't try to be like me and in my image in terms of thinking you're wise. Don't reserve for your, your, yourselves the right to define good and evil or think you can judge good and evil. Leave all that to me. You just love. And that tree is in the center of the garden because I think what it's communicating is that everything pertaining to life as God intended it with us, us dwelling with God in Eden, everything revolves around our honoring that prohibition. That's why we preach against judgment so much here. Uh, we can't love and judge at the same time. So that's what that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. Then the serpent says, you won't die. Look, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat from that tree and you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. 
The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it could give her. She, so she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave to her husband, who, like a good husband, was obedient. And he ate it too. <laughs> at that moment, that very moment, their eyes were opened. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Then when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And here's the question. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Adam and Eve says in Genesis 2 that they, they would take a walk with God in, in the cool breeze of the evening. Now, in, in the hot Mediterranean world where this narrative was first composed, the best part of the day was the cool breeze of the evening. That's when things cooled down. And so by telling us that they would go for a stroll with Yahweh in the cool breeze of, of the day, it's just telling us that that was, that was the best part of the day. That was the highlight. And they didn't have like an agenda that they talk about on these strolls or, or you know, some kind of business they had to discuss. It was just about them enjoying each other's company. Let's go for a walk together. It's just about Adam and Eve loving and enjoying God who's loving and enjoying them. And that was the, that was the whole point. That's life in the Garden of Eden. Now, the truth is, that is still the point. That is still the goal. Us loving and enjoying God, who's loving and enjoying us, loving and enjoying him. Uh, that's, in the church tradition, they call that the beatific vision. That's the highest good. Uh, that's the goal of everything. That's the final state of things. Uh, for eternity, we'll just be in this bliss of enjoying and loving God, who's enjoying and loving us. That was the goal. The whole point of everything is simply to take a stroll with God in the cool breeze of the day. Um, and, and, and so he, this is what they're enjoying. Uh, but see, for that to happen, you have to have a total trust in God's character, and you have to be free of judgments. And so the first thing, and that's why that tree is in the middle of the garden. Everything revolves around this, trusting God's character and being free of judgments. It's why the first thing that the crafty serpent goes after is Eve's picture of God. If he's going to get Eve to mistrust God and get Eve to be full of judgments, uh, he just paints this lurid picture of God. He suggests that God is not this loving God that you think he is. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's a, he's a, a lying, petty, manipulative deity. And the only reason he's telling you not to eat of that tree is he doesn't want you to have what he's got. He doesn't want any competition. And so the serpent suggests to Eve this. Look at Eve, if you trust that deity, you are selling yourself short. If you trust that deity, you're missing out on the best thing. The best thing is right there on, on that tree. Uh, if, if you've been content to just walk with God in the cool breeze of the day, but it's a ruse, it's a deception. He's only doing that with you because uh, he wants to keep you from getting curious because then you might get what he's got. The serpent suggests to Eve that, that, that you can do better. You know, to be, Eve, to be all you can be. You gotta, you gotta launch out on your own. You gotta reach out and grab and you gotta take what is rightfully yours. You're not okay as you are, Eve. No, if you wanna be, find your real worth and your real identity, you gotta take some action here. And see, the minute Eve believes that, she stops being a human being and she starts to become a human doing. Because now her worth and identity is gonna be wrapped up not in what, who she is, but it's going to be wrapped up in what she does and what she can acquire. 
And that's still as true of us today as it was of Eve. If you don't trust God, if you don't trust God, you end up just trusting yourself. If you don't trust what God says about you, what your worth and identity is, you end up trying to achieve your worth and identity. You stop being a human being and you start being a human doing. And so here, Eve, no longer trusting God, uh, she, she listens to the serpent's instruction. And she takes from the tree and gives it to her husband and he takes them too. And immediately the poison of that tree, the poison of the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil begins to take effect. They lose their innocence. They enter into Satan's world of judgment. They enter into this world of performance reviews and, and achievement standards and uh, comparisons and evaluations. It's the tree, the world of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so now as they're looking at themselves through the lens of that tree, they feel shame because they feel naked. They all of a sudden realize they're naked. And, and, and they feel like there's something defective about them. There's something wrong with them. And so they got to cover themselves up. That's what shame does. It, you have a feeling of being defective and it makes you want to hide. At least hide that area that you feel is defective. That's how shame always works. So they, they look at themselves and they judge themselves to be defective. There's something wrong with us. And they, they feel the shame and they want to hide. And then the cool evening breeze sets in, that time of day. And so Yahweh shows up to go for their daily stroll. But now Adam and Eve being infected with the poison of this tree, they judge themselves to be defective, and now they judge Yahweh to be scary. And so they hide among the trees. So Yahweh says, where are you? Where are you? This is the time when we go for our walk. And, and you can't hear that as an angry, where are you? No, it's, it, it, this is the, where are you? Uh, this is the Annie M on the Wizard of Oz, okay? Dorothy, where are you, Dorothy? Uh, this is the, the, the where are you of a, of a parent who's concerned because a child's gone missing, all right? Where are you? And Adam, sheepishly, I expect, answers, well, we, we heard you walking in the garden and we were afraid because uh, we're naked and, and so we hid. And what he's saying is, we, we realize that we're defective. We're defective, and, and uh, we didn't want you, we're afraid of you seeing us in this, in this condition. The thing is, nothing had changed. They'd always been naked. It's just that well, what had changed was that now they're interpreting their nakedness differently. They're looking at their nakedness through the lens of this judgment, and they're, they're deciding, coming to the conclusion that they're defective. There's something wrong with them, and so they hide. And so then the Lord says, and this is the all-important question, who told you that? Who told you that you're not okay as you are? Who told you that enjoying me and loving me, enjoying you and loving you, who told you that that wasn't enough? Who told you that you needed to do something and get something to be all you can be? Who told you that you needed to be involved in a performance review or an achievement standard or a comparison or evaluation to find your worth? Who told you that you're defective? In other words, who taught you how to feel shame? Who taught you how to feel shame? The story, folks, and the answer to that, of course, is the serpent, who we later find out is Satan. And there's a reason why he's called the accuser. He's the Lord of all judgment, the accuser. And he gets in your head and starts accusing you and then gets you to start accusing others. That's how it works. And you see it right there in Genesis 3. Now, this story is so profound on so many levels. Um, it's, it's not just a story about what went wrong in the past. It's a story about what continues to go wrong in the present. Uh, it's a story about us. When we believe the serpent's lie about God, we stop trusting what God says about our worth and identity, 
And when we do that, we buy the lie that we've got to do something or acquire something to achieve our worth and to achieve our identity. So we're no longer content being a human being. We start to become a human do- doing, and we start to strive for all the stuff that God wants to give us for free. We enter into this world of performance reviews and achievement standards and comparisons and evaluations. And we inevitably eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and start to experience shame, inevitably. And the reason we experience pain, shame as a kind of pain, and it is that, it's the pain of shame. And the reason why we experience this pain is because that, that feeling of lacking worth and needing to try to get it is completely alien to the way we were created. It's unnatural for us. And anytime we experience something unnatural, it feels like pain. We were never meant to feel this lack of worth. We were created to have a fullness of life and a fullness of worth, just enjoying and loving God who's enjoying and loving us. That, that's what we were created for. And so when we experience this lack, well, it feels like pain. It is pain. I, I think the, the clearest picture of the kind of relationship God wanted with us. In this fallen world, it's sometimes hard to see God's original plan. But, but the, the clearest peak we get into what God really originally wanted for us and still wants for us is I think the way a healthy couple just dawdles over the little newborn baby. You know, a, a couple looking at the newborn baby... <laughs> I just think it's like the purest thing in the world. In a world that's so often impure, this is pure. And see, that little baby is just loved. That baby isn't loved because of what it can acquire, or what it can achieve, or what it can, who it can impress, or anything like that. A baby, they didn't put the baby through a performance review or set it to an achievement standard or do some kind of comparison or evaluation before they love the baby. They just love the baby. The baby is what it is, and they just love the baby as it is. The baby's worth is completely settled just by virtue of the fact that that baby was born out of the love of this couple. That's how it was supposed to be. That's the kind of relationship that God wants with us. And see, in a couple months, if this is a healthy environment, that baby is going to start to learn how to love and enjoy those parents loving and enjoying the baby. And for that baby, that's its whole world. And it is enough. It is satisfied. It is in the blissful innocence of this world where it just enjoys loving and enjoying mom and dad who are loving and enjoying it. That's the kind of relationship that God wants. That he desires for us. And in fact, that's the kind of relationship that our hearts most deeply yearn for. We, love, we yearn to love and be loved like that. And when that is perfected, it is enough. It is perfectly satisfying. It is the fullness of life. Sadly, that baby is born into a fallen world. That baby is born into a world that is addicted to the eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That baby is born into a world that runs on performance reviews and achievement standards and evaluations and comparisons. And so it's just a matter of time before the innocence of that just enjoying and loving mom and dad who enjoy loving me, that innocence gets lost. It's just a matter of time before the serpent's lie gets planted in this baby's brain. It's just a matter of time before that, that baby grows up and learns that it's not enough just to be a human being. That you don't get love and worth just because you were born out of the love of God. That that's not enough. It's just a matter of time before that baby, as it's growing up, learns that, that its worth is, is, is got to, to get that worth, you've got to measure up. And it's around that time that that baby will learn that in some respects it doesn't measure up. It's just a matter of time before that Baby, as it grows up, embraces that world of performance reviews and, and, and achievement standards and evaluations and comparisons, and it owns it as its own. And so it's just a matter of time before that baby realizes it's naked and that it's vulnerable and that it's defective. It's just a matter of time before that person will experience the unnatural pain of shame and want to hide, 
want to hide some aspect of it. So the question I, I want us to ask ourselves is, is just this. Who, who told you that you were naked? When did you learn that? When did you lose your innocence? When did you learn that, that, that just being a human being wasn't enough? That, that, being, that you don't get love and you don't get worth just by virtue of the fact that you were born out of the love of God? When did you learn to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And when did you learn that you need to measure up and then learn that you didn't measure up? Who told you that you were defective? Who told you? Who told you that your nose was too long or your ears stick out too far or your eyes are too close together? Who, who told you that your face is ugly or that you're fat or you're too skinny or that your hair is too curly and it's weird? Or who told you that, that, that uh, you're stupid and that you're a failure and that you'll never amount to much? Who told you that you're not as athletic as your brother or you're not as pretty as your sister? Or that, that your only value is, is the, the pleasure that you can give a man? Uh, who told you that, that if people really knew who you were, they wouldn't like you? That you don't belong here? That, that no one wants you? Who told you that you're an embarrassment and a disappointment? Who told you that God, if you don't impress him, he's going to be angry with you? He's going to want nothing to do with you? He's going to damn you? When did you learn that? Who told you? I, I know when I first heard that word, um, and I've shared this before, but it fits here. Uh, I was around three years old. It's the earliest memory, in fact, I have. Um, in fact, I didn't remember this for 30 years. I, it was only when I was 33 when an event happened that triggered this memory, and it came to me in prayer. My mom died when I was two and a half years old uh, of leukemia, and my dad had to travel a lot. So uh, my mom's mom, my grandma, moved in with us uh, to take care of me and my three siblings. And she was this old crotchety, actually I say she was old because I'm remembering her as a kid, but she's probably younger than I was, but, but she's this old crotchety strict Catholic lady who's grieving over the death of her daughter and now is overwhelmed with a task that she never signed up for. And I was, they tell me this, I have trouble believing it, but they tell me I was a hyperactive kid, really hyperactive, and so grandma and me didn't get along very well. My dad used to tell me, oh, grandma O'Donnell, she's never liked you very much. We just didn't get along very well. So there's this time, it was, it was Christmas, around Christmas, and it was, in fact, the first Christmas after my mom died, and grandma came home, and she had some early Christmas presents for us, and she announced this, hey, I got Christmas presents. So all the kids gather around, and, and we're all excited, and she's got this bag, and I'm most excited, jumping up and down. And so she gives this cool doll to my older sister, Debbie, and she gives this cool tugboat to my older brother, Chris, and she gives this, this pony to my younger daughter, Anita, but she doesn't have any presents for me. And, and Debbie says, you know, Grandma, isn't Greggy going to get a, a, a present? And my grandmother bends down and looks into my face with this ugly, angry scowl, and she goes, no, bad boys don't get Christmas presents, and Greggy is a bad boy. And, and I mean, that was just... I think that was the day where the toddler learned he was naked and vulnerable and that the world got a little scarier and darker that day. That was the day I think that some innocence was lost and that, that little toddler learned that love isn't for free and your worth is not settled. You've got to measure up. I think that was the day where he learned that he has to measure up and as a matter of fact, he doesn't measure up. He doesn't belong in the category of the good boys who get Christmas presents. There's something defective with him. There's something wrong with him. He's bad. He's bad. And that was the day, I think, that I first learned the, the experience of the unnatural pain of shame. Lacking worth. And see, as always, judgments on us become judgments in us. The you're bad becomes an I'm bad. 
And as I shared last week, and if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to that message because this is building on that, and this whole series will. But, but we tend to believe the voices that are in our head. And so that you're bad, which became an I'm bad, it's stuck on me. And that's the way shame always works. It's like it freezes you in the judgment at the, at the time that you got judged. It freezes you. So 22-year-old Shanisha is uh, still stuck in, in an adolescent girl who's being sexually abused and, and she's coming to believe that her only value is the, is, is the pleasure she can give guys. And so at the age of 22, as much as she hates it and makes her feel yicky, she finds herself ending up in bed with promiscuous guys. And 30-year-old Brandy is, is still frozen as an as a 11-year-old out on the playground and the kids are teasing her because she's ugly and fat and they're doing it in front of everybody. And this is why she lives her life with an eating disorder and an obsession about how she appears. And Carlos is 43, and he, he, he's still stuck in the, in the mind of a 10-year-old guy who thinks the world's going to end if he doesn't score the touchdown and impress dad, and he doesn't. And so now he spends his life as a stressed-out workaholic, burning through three marriages, and he never sees his kids. The 58-year-old Ellison is, is still... Trapped as an eight-year-old who's blaming himself for dad abandoning the family. He thought it was his fault. And so all of his life, he's still, 48 years later, he's, he's, he feels a pervasive sadness, a melancholy in his life. Even though the rest of his life is going wonderful, there's just a thing that he can't get over. He can't, he's frozen in time. That's what shame does to us. The judgment on us becomes the judgment in us, and it freezes us. And as I'm seeing it, 29% of the people, about a third of the people who come to Woodland Hills Church, feel frozen. In some aspect of their life, and others, it may not be the number one problem you're dealing with, but on some level, I bet you deal with it. It's the toxicity of shame, the toxicity of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When I look back at my life, I, you know, so much of it, in my early life, so much of it was spent trying so hard to be good. I really wanted to be good. I tried, and I, I never succeeded. I always ended up being bad. It was like I was fated to be bad. I didn't plan on it. I just discovered it about myself. It, it was, uh, you know, I, so I become the class clown, the kid who's bad, or the kid who's always getting in trouble. And then in seventh grade, I become the son who, instead of getting trophies on the wall like my brother had, I didn't have any, but he had a bunch of sports trophies, but instead of that, I, I get a framed arrest certificate for stealing records. And then... Before too long, I become the son who quit trying to be good. And I just thought, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, it's all I got going for me. Check out of school, check out of everything. And um, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, because that's who I am. I'm bad. The word on me became a word in me, and it froze me. And I think I'd be frozen to this day if Jesus hadn't saved me. Amen. So the question is, who froze you? When did you get frozen? Whose who's, uh, performance review did you fail? Whose who's, uh, achievement standard did you not meet up to? What comparison were you on the losing end of? What evaluation did you bomb? When were you frozen? Uh, the good news, folks, is that God does not leave us in our frozen state. Praise God. He doesn't leave us there. Whoever told you that you were naked and need to feel ashamed, you got to know that there's another voice out there that says you don't, need, you don't need to feel any shame. You can be set free from all shame. And that's the voice of your creator. Uh, we read the passage earlier where, where uh, shame first entered the world. I want to now read the passage where shame exited our world. At least, if you'll have faith that this is true, shame exited the world. It's found in Hebrews. And here's what it, the author says. Because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross, 
disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. I love this passage. It's interesting, isn't it, that the thing that this author focuses on that Jesus disregarded about the cross was the shame of the cross. Not, not its pain, which would have been enough, and not the inevitable death, but it's the shame that Jesus disregarded. And, and what you need to know is that Romans, they designed crucifixion not just for maximal torture, but also for maximal humiliation. Uh, the crucifixion was their way of telling all onlookers, this is what happens to you if you mess with us. And so they made it as painful as possible, but also as humiliating as possible. So they would take the criminals and they would strip them completely naked in front of everybody. And then they'd beat them. And then they'd march them through the street on the way to the crucifixion. And the crowds would typically, this was their form of entertainment, they'd mock these people, they'd, they'd taunt these people, they'd make fun of their genitalia. Sometimes they'd put funny masks on them and stuff like that. It was just as humiliating as possible, and that's how the Romans designed it. And this is what happened with Jesus. He was arrested, and then he was stripped naked in front of everybody, and then he was beaten almost beyond recognition, and then he was made to carry the crossbeam of the cross throughout the town on the way to Calvary, and as he did that, people mocked him, they spit on him, they put on this crown of thorns because he's supposed to be a king, and, and it was as humiliating as could be imagined. And then as the holy son of God hung naked on the cross, one last little mockery, they put over his head the sign, King of the Jews. It was as humiliating as possible. Not just death, but humiliating death. But the author says that for the joy set before him, Jesus disregarded the shame of the cross. The joy set before him was just the joy of seeing the multitudes who would be set free by what he was about to do. And that compelled him to disregard the shame. Now, that, that, that term disregard is interesting. Katafroneo. Katafroneo. It means to consider as nothing. That's nothing. It also has a connotation of to condemn. So that's why some translations said that Jesus despised the suffering of the cross. So it's to consider as nothing and or to consider condemned. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the shame of nakedness, which was the first effect that we felt after the fall. First thing we felt after the fall was, was, was shame. It's not a coincidence that the first thing that Jesus undoes on the cross is that shame of nakedness. He considers it nothing. He condemns it. Uh, and that's because... See, the cross is all about reversing the curse, reversing the fall. And so Jesus reverses the curse of, of the shame of our nakedness by disregarding his shame. And, and, and what he does is, is he reverses, he goes to the root of it all, he reverses the image of, the deceptive image of God that the serpent had conveyed. We saw that the serpent convinced Eve that God was this, this petty God. God was a manipulative God. God was not a loving God. God was a lying, deceptive God. A God who could not be trusted. And we see what Jesus reveals on the cross. Because he disregarded the shame, he considered it nothing and condemned it, he reveals a God who's the exact opposite of that. On the cross, we see a God revealed who, who thought we were, each one of us, worth dying for despite our sin, despite our rebellion, we were worth dying for. And so the cross reveals a God whose love for us is unconditional and it's unsurpassable and it's unimprovable and it's got nothing whatsoever to do with what you do or don't do or what you achieve or what you don't achieve or what you lose. No, it's just there. It's, it's the kind of love of, of healthy parents towards their newborn child. And the cross reveals a God who would do and has done everything possible to reconcile us and to restore us into a relationship where we just have a fullness of life because we love and enjoy him as he's loving and enjoying us. That's the, that's the God that the cross reveals. And, and, and so what that does, folks, if we believe that, it exposes the lie. 
it completely, the cross exposes completely the lie of shame. It, it exposes the lie that our worth and identity uh, is something that we need to achieve and something that we need to attain uh, that is somehow associated with the performance reviews and the, and the achievement standards and the evaluations and the comparisons. It exposes the lie that, that in fact, what Jesus does on the cross is he takes all the performance reviews and achievement standards and the comparisons and the evaluation and the whole Satan shame game and he blows it sky high as something that's utterly insignificant. It's got no place anymore. And, and so if the performance reviews and the achievement standards and the comparisons and the evaluations don't have any significance, they're rendered null and void, they're disregarded, they're considered nothing, and they're condemned. If that's true, then no one need ever feel shame because you don't meet the performance standards. You don't meet the performance review. You don't match up to the, the achievement standards, and you don't fare well in the comparisons and the evaluations because your worth is established on Calvary, and it's got nothing to do with any of those things, praise God. So the bottom line, bottom line is that, that if Jesus considered the, the shame of nakedness to be nothing, we can consider the shame of nakedness to be nothing. If Jesus condemned all shame, we can consider all shame to be condemned. If Jesus destroyed all shame, then we can consider all shame to be destroyed. Amen? Amen. In fact, in fact, the author says that because Jesus considered shame nothing and condemned it and bore it on the cross, because of that, now he says this, now he's seated in the place of honor next to the throne of God. Now he's seated in the place of honor next to the throne of God. Because he condemned shame, he's now in the highest place of honor, which is the opposite of shame. You see that? It's the opposite of shame. It, 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 it's, it's freedom from shame. And here's, folks, where the good news gets gooder. Here's where it gets great. Here's where it gets spectacular. Because Paul says this. Follow me on this. Ephesians 2, he says, For God raised, up, raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Jesus Christ. Okay, where Jesus sits, we sit, because we are in him. If he's in heavenly places, and we're in him, then we are in heavenly places. And where are heavenly places? They are in the place of honor. Amen? That's where you're seated. In fact, Paul says, expounds a little bit more about just where, what, what this place is. In the previous chapter in Ephesians, he says this. God seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. You name it, it's far above it. Not only in this world, but in the world to come. Mm. See, the, the, the reality is this. Christ is far above all rulers and authorities and powers and leaders and anything else. And you are in Christ, so do the math. You are seated far above all rulers and authorities and powers and leaders and anything else. You are seated far above. You're, you're, you're in the place of honor. You're sitting at the head of the table in the place of honor, praise God. And so you are seated far above any domain that would still find relevance in the performance reviews or the achievement standards or the evaluations or the comparisons. And that, that whole tree of knowledge world, you're sitting far above that in the place of honor where there is no shame. There is only honor because you are in Christ. Christ is honored, so you are honored in Christ. Hallelujah. That's how the math of heaven works. Praise God. So, so that's what's true about you. That's what's true about me. The only question is, will we have faith in that? Which is to ask the question, Will we be experiencing that in our life? Experiencing the freedom of shame that we have in Christ? Will we be experiencing that by faith here and now? Will we continue to believe the voices in our head that shame us, that tell us we're naked, that, that tell us we're defective, tell us we're wrong, and all of that? Or will we put our faith in the creator who tells us that we're seated far above all of that 
in the highest place of honor. What are we going to believe? What are we going to believe? So it's like this, folks. Grandma said to me that I was bad. I don't belong in the category of good boys who can get presents and proudly have trophies on the shelf. I'm not in that category. But see, I'm not three anymore. I had no choice when I was three. I believed her, but now I'm not three. And as an adult, I can choose who I'm going to believe. Why would I believe her? You know, she's an old, crotchety, strict Catholic lady who, who God bless her, she was doing her best. She's grieving the loss of her, her mom and or her, her daughter and, and, and is overwhelmed with a task that she never signed up for and she's probably just having a real bad day. So why would I believe her? Because see, the truth is my creator, my creator has a different opinion. Uh, I, I, through, through, because of the cross, he says to me, you're not bad, you're beautiful. <laughs> you're beautiful. Who am I going to believe? I'm Inclined to think that my, that, that my creator might know a little bit more than my crotchety grandmother. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. Maybe, possibly, I don't, I don't know. Um, wh- why go on believing her? In fact, far from being barred from the good boys who get Christmas presents and probably have trophies uh, on the table, far, far from being barred from that cl- class, I am seated in the highest place of honor. <laughs> I, I, I am seated in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm seated in heavenly places. I'm far above the domain that finds significance in trophies and in presents. And, and, and who cares? Who, why would I give a rip how many trophies I didn't get or how many arrest certificates I did get? That, that's utterly irrelevant to me now. The whole performance review, the achievement standards, the evaluations, the comparisons, the whole shame game is dead and gone. I say good riddance to it because I'm in a much better place right now. Not when I die and go to heaven. Right now, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places, and so are you. So why would I give a rip about all that performance review kind of stuff? That's all part of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil curse, and it's rendered null and void in the cross, so it's rendered null and void in me. And if, that's, if the performance reviews and achievement successes and evaluations and, 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 and com- comparisons, if they no longer have any significance, then and I'm far above all that, well, then I'm far above anything that could cause me shame, because shame just happens when you fail at those things. But in Christ, not only do you not fail at those things, those things are rendered null and void. They're irrelevant. I'm loved by my creator. I'm forgiven by my creator. I'm embraced by my creator. So I am a baby in the arms of Jesus. And I'm just enjoying and loving him as he enjoys and loves me. And there is nothing else that matters. Nothing else matters. I'm just, you know, and and why would I be ashamed of being naked? You know, babies aren't ashamed of being naked. (laughs) Yeah, and they poop right on you and they smile doing it. You know, they don't care. They don't care. They're, they're, they're just, oh, so why would I be ashamed of being naked and held in the arms of Jesus, enjoying and loving him as he's enjoying and loving me? In fact, the truth is I'm not naked because I'm clothed in righteousness. Hallelujah. In the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And, and, and so there's no shame there. I, I, I don't know who told you that you're defective, your nose is too big, you're too fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're poor, you're, you're, you're never going to measure up, you're, you're defective, God doesn't like you, no one likes you, you don't belong here, you're embarrassment, disappointment. I don't know who told you that, I don't know who froze you, but I know this. Your creator has a very different opinion about you. Uh, and if you'll just believe it, put your faith in Christ Jesus then you can begin, get, begin to experience this. Because he says, you're altogether lovely, you're altogether holy, you're altogether pure. Yeah, you got your imperfections. We're going to work on that. I'm going to love you out of those things. But, but, but he, he, he says that you, it's, it's a lie that you don't belong because you belong right here in Christ Jesus at the highest place of honor. That's what your creative says. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to have faith in? I, I, I want to... Start to, start to bring this to a close. That doesn't mean I'm closing, mind you, but I'm going to start. Um, by having us recall what I said last week about faith, and if you weren't here, I encourage you to get that message. 
Um, but faith, we saw last week, I, I paraphrased Hebrews 11.1 1 this way. Faith is a reality like vision, hypostasis, of what you hope for or anticipate, el pizzo, that creates the feeling that it is so, elegkos, even though you don't see or experience it yet. That's the definition of faith. It's the imaginative seeing of something vividly that you anticipate, uh, you believe to be true, and, that, and you, it's your elpizo, and you see it as a substantial reality, reality like, and it creates in you a conviction that it is so, even though you don't experience it yet. And that, that conviction is what moves you in that direction. And so we're, tra- we're transformed from just knowing about truth to experiencing truth by faith, by exercising faith. And so I want to end by challenging you to practice two forms of faith. Last week I gave you this assignment just to see yourself as you truly are in Christ. Now I'm going to make it more specific. Okay? Two areas I want us to be having faith in. And practice this on a regular basis. Because folks, this is the ticket of freedom. Right here. You get your money's worth if you just put this into practice. Money's worth for what it costs you to be at the service this morning, which is nothing. So you get what you paid for. But this is, if you paid a million dollars, it would be worth it. Listen to this. First of all, Exercise faith in you, enjoying and loving God, enjoying and loving you. Start doing now what we're going to be doing throughout eternity. Uh, Jesus didn't save you because you're going to be so effective at this, and you're going to be so good at this, and you're going to help the church so many ways, all that. He uses you in those things, but he saved you because he loves you, and he just wants to hang out with you. The purpose is to take a walk in the cool evening breeze, and to enjoy him enjoying you, and love him loving you. And so I encourage you to take time to do that. Um, you know, what I recommend, I have a book on this, by the way, called Seeing is Believing. Uh, you can get it out. It's all on this, this kind of, I call it resting prayer. Uh, the most important thing that Christians do, because this is at the center of everything, the most important thing that we can possibly do is to find, learn how to do nothing and just be in the presence of Jesus, enjoying him, enjoying you. The most important thing. And so, so just... Turn down the lights, and maybe if it helps you put on some beautiful music that opens you up, that, that, that's what music is for. And then envision, see, and hear, and sense Jesus right in front of you. Look into his eyes and, and, and feel his hug and hear him say to you all the things he's already said about you, but now he says it to you and with your name. And, and, and drink that in. This is what your heart yearns for. This is what you're made for. And this is the center of all transformation. Uh, Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 3, that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let God just shine out his love on you. And yeah, you've got your imperfections, you've got your faults, you've got all those things. Uh, be real with them, but this isn't the time to like, try to hide those or to make promises or whatever. Just be you and let God love you as you. Because it's, it's as we let God love us in the, in all of our, with all of our warts and all of our stuff, that's how he grows us out of all of our warts and all of our stuff. It's the love of Christ that compels us. Unless you can really feel loved right now in your position, in the midst of your excrement, whatever you've created out of your life, unless you can feel loved by God in the middle of that, you're never going to get out of that in a healthy way. Because you might get out of it to, trying to impress him or trying to whatever, but you're just going to jump into some other puddle of excrement. You, 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 you trade off your crap holes. Uh, to get out of it, you've got to know that your worth and your value doesn't depend on whether you're in a crap hole or whether you're in a pristine palace. No, it's based on you. It's based on you. And so you don't need to perform your way out of this or achieve your way out of this or earn your way out of this. Just be you in this and let him love you in this. And see, that's the thing that, 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 that begins to 
creating you a desire to get out of this and empowers you to get out of this. Spend time just loving God, loving you, enjoying God, enjoying you. Have faith in that, which means see it as a, as a substantial reality. Secondly, I encourage you to regularly have faith in the true shame-free you, especially if shame is something you deal with. Uh, your brain's churning all the time. The question is, what is it turning over? What is it seeing? What is it hearing? And for the most part, if, we're not, if, we, if we don't take authority over our brains, if we don't intentionally try to take every thought captive, then what's churning up there is simply the crap we inherited from the world. Uh, I encourage you to take time to see the true you. What do you look like? If you believe this is true, then what do you look like? Can you get an image of yourself walking through your life, manifesting the reality that you are seated with Christ far above all performance reviews and far above all achievement standards and comparisons and evaluations? Can you get a picture of that? What do you look like? When, you, when, when all those shaming voices in your head, grandma and grandpa and dad and all that, what do you look like when you really believe that you're far above trying to need dad's approval or grandma's approval? Uh, therefore, you're far above ever feeling shame over their disapproval because you've got the approval of God Almighty. What do you look like? How do you act differently? Uh, what does it look like when all those shaming voices have been silenced and the only word you hear is the voice of your creator telling you that you are seated at the seat of the, the, the head of the table highest place of honor in Christ Jesus. What do you look like when you really believe that, that you're okay, that you're not effective, that comparisons have no meaning to you anymore and valuations have no meaning to you anymore because you, you your identity is in the cross. And I especially encourage you to take those situations in life and vividly imagine them, the ones where you feel the most shame or maybe even just imagine situations where you would feel the most shame. What's the worst thing that could happen? See yourself in that situation and now now see the true you. And you can do it. It's as easy as turning, as I said last week, a green banana into a yellow banana into a pink banana with purple polka dots. You have authority over your brain. See yourself as you are in Christ. And how do you respond differently in those situations where you don't feel shame and you don't feel embarrassed? Uh, no, because your identity settled 2,000 years ago on the cross. And you're seated in a place that's far above all of this game, shame game. You avoid the pain of shame and the Shame game by knowing where you're seated, knowing who you're in, knowing who you belong to, knowing who defines your worth and your identity. And it's by exercising faith like that, folks, that the truth of who we are starts to become the experience of our life. We actually are transformed into that. It's true already, but as we get our minds to line up with that truth, we, we begin to experience it. Romans 12, 2, you begin to test and approve what is God's perfect will. It's always pleasing. It's always good. You begin to find that out for yourself. And see, now, 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 now you're on the road to freedom. Uh, this, is, this is freedom in Christ Jesus. This is where the chains get broken. You get, uh, you get unfrozen. You get untagged. You get out of, you blow sky high that prison of shame that you've been in, in, in bondage to. And, and um, now you're free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, would you stand? Uh, I'd like to call the prayer teams to come up here. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, uh, it can be about this topic. Could it be something totally different? But I encourage you to come up here and, and get prayer for that. Uh, don't forget that word about the, the men's uh, conference and the women's conference on the 24th and 25th of February, uh, something that you want to check out. As we leave here, I pray that we can do it as a people who are set free, totally set free, who know who we are, we know whose we are. We know where we are seated. We know we, we, we're at the top of the table and in a place of honor. And we know how to silence the voices of shame, the deceptive voices that are in our, in, in our minds. 
Let's go out, believe the truth. Let's go out and live the truth in Jesus' name. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.